Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. All right, welcome to our podcast. I'm M, the Ask portion of Ask a Medievalist, and joining me as always is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. And I think I ought to start by saying uh, happy Passover. Yes. And uh, happy Easter, because that's coming up tomorrow. We are in the middle, of course, of the Easter week, so... Yes. It is kind of always Happy Easter during this week. As a... As a I won't call myself a, a heretic. <laughs> by, by Catholic Christian standards, I have no idea other than the day where you eat chocolate. I Yes. That there's more to Easter than that, so... But I've stocked up on Easter eggs. Important. And uh, I've got one box of matzah. Or as we call it, uh, sadness crackers. Aww, that's is pretty good. It's a literal, <laughs> a literal translation of the Hebrew lechem atzuvot. You know, also they came out with special peeps this year. Did they? Maybe in previous years as well, but I only found them for the first time this year. Yeah, they were like four in a package, and they were raspberry. And they were dipped in like white chocolate fudge. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh man. You know, not kosher for Passover, but sort of. I wish I wish I'd had more time to like wander around target looking at the goodies that is where i found them <laughs> yes <laughs> there were too many people at our target like staring at the at the aisles like looking kind of shell-shocked and then i was like ah. can i jump in front of you to grab a package of easter eggs is that coming too close like right what do i do yep no so. i our target had both the like passover and then the easter and because you know i don't really keep kosher as far as I'm concerned, marshmallows are always kosher for Passover. Sure. Because they can be, and therefore peeps are kosher for Passover, <laughs> as of course is the chocolate. Yes. So fair game on both sides, and I just, you know, went to each one when nobody else was looking. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> I tried one year in college to keep so strictly kosher that I wasn't even eating high fructose corn syrup for Passover. Oh, wow. And it turns out, as a vegetarian, there's like literally nothing you can get if you're not at home um right. that fits like because yogurt has corn syrup in it or mm -hmm. you know so if you get a salad at a store then it has corn syrup in the dressing and or soybean yep. oil or something so yep I well ate. also of course ashkenazi because ashkenazi yes. is so much more strict than sephardic yeah yes so, like, no rice and no... <laughs> so I ate a lot of potatoes that week. And yes. <laughs> it was very sad. Yes. <laughs> it was a very sad Passover. Oh. Um, yep. All right. So I have lots of questions, actually, about Passover and Easter. Yes. Which is, as far as I'm concerned, like, a crazy holiday because it's got chickens and rabbits. Uh, rabbits that lay eggs, potentially, and... Well, they bring eggs. <laughs> I don't think the Easter Bunny lays them. I don't know. The Cadbury cream egg commercials certainly imply that the Easter Bunny is laying those eggs. It does kind of. Like, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but there's also chicken. Like they're all the animals who try to dress up like the Easter Bunny. So there's the chicken who dresses up. Yes. Which. So maybe he's an acting rabbit. Yes, right? Because the chicken theoretically could actually lay the eggs. This is performative. Yeah, I never quite understood. That's okay. Who, I don't think it's supposed yeah. to be logical. Okay. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yes. And it's fun supposed for children. To be chocolate. Right. Of all ages, as they say. Yeah, sure. Um, so let's start by talking about Passover because I think it's probably the 
chronologically oldest holiday. The founding holiday. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Passover um, is kind of a prototypical Jewish holiday. Or maybe, I mean, it's the easiest Jewish <laughs> holiday to explain to non-Jews because it has, like, special food rules, a lot of family togetherness. Well, and everyone knows the story. Right. Because everyone's seen Charlton Heston part the Red Sea. Yes. Right? So, Ten Commandments. Everyone knows. And also, there's a long history in the U.S., right? So, yes. um, enslaved people heading to freedom... There are tons of biblical metaphors. So crossing the Mississippi or crossing any river, right, that gave you freedom before you had to get all the way to Canada, eventually. The idea of sort of crossing the River Jordan or obviously, right, Moses and the mm-hmm. idea that Harriet Tubman, right, one of her sort of names because of that sense of leading people, right, leading your people to freedom. Yeah. And of course, there's a spiritual in all of these things. Several spirituals. Although I do not like the parallel of Southern slave owners being like Yul Brenner. Well, like fair. <laughs> right. <laughs> he seems like much of a greater dude than most yes. of them. But. I mean, but of course, the parallel of keeping people enslaved is the, the point. And obviously, yeah, Ramses, if true. we think of him historically, was certainly no worse a tyrant than any other ruler and did an extraordinary yeah. incredible incredible things, right? But um, from the sense of any people who are enslaved, that, of course, is always wrong. That being said, at the time Mm -hmm. in U.S. history, the Bible was used to both obviously argue against slavery because of Exodus, right? The Israelites are led out, so God did clearly think it was wrong. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. he let them be there for a long time, um, so Southern plantationers absolutely did say that the Bible upheld slavery. Um, hmm. yeah. So it was actually used to justify both sides, which is problematic, you know, but it's a very, the Bible is a very, very complex document. But yeah, so that sense, so everyone knows that story, right? Mm-hmm. That the Israelites are slaves in the land of Egypt, famously. And so let's let see. out. Ramses Ramses lived in the 1200s BCE. Yeah. So do we do we have historical dates of when no. people started, you know? No, no. Okay. Cuz obviously by the time we get to the Easter story, uh Passover is a pretty entrenched practice. Like it's it's something that people are very normally Yes. I mean, the Bible itself, the Hebrew Bible, so the Torah, and Mm -hmm. most of the holidays show up sort of the six and five hundreds and thereafter. Okay. That's where most of this stuff is from. The idea that Ramses is supposed to be the pharaoh is the sort of thing that a lot of people have tried to demonstrate, but it's absolutely not really clear that that's the case. Oh. And, um, of course, there's no actual evidence anywhere. So this is this is like those people who are trying to derive that the earth began on October 15th, you know, 5032 BC. Not exactly. No, this is a little more historically accurate in the sense of trying to figure out, given when the Bible was written, Ramses is sort of the is sort of the obvious. The idea that would have Mm -hmm. happened about 600 years before is sort of what people have decided (laughs) 
seems accurate. Okay. <laughs> right? If you think of the generations that would have passed or something along those lines, or just mm-hmm. how long ago that would have been, right? So that this story has become so symbolic and so legendary that, of course... You know, things like the specific plagues and this and that don't necessarily make sense. But if you think of, for some of these things to have been somewhat historically accurate, which is to say that there was a Mm -hmm. time when people were enslaved in Egypt. um, And from that time to sort of the, you know, Babylonian captivity and then to the right. If you try to put these things in a historical order, because to some extent, the fact that any of them might be at least a little historical, you know to give rise to these legends, then you have to sort of mm-hmm. figure out what that timeline would be. Um, Ramses is one of the people who's been put forward, at least in the sort of general area okay. of his existence, as being the time this would have happened. Somewhere around mm. his reign. <laughs> okay. Essentially, right? Um, and to be fair, there are there are things that are more obviously specific so if we ever talk about Esther, for example, Ahasuerus is presumably Xerxes. Okay. So that's another parallel. That's a much closer parallel, obviously. Or historical mm-hmm. <laughs> possibility. But yeah, so the idea of trying to map some of these things onto history, that's mm-hmm. sort of where it gets Okay. Put. Which is also why then you would say that the Israelites helped build the pyramids. Hmm. So it all works together this way. <laughs> Yeah. Although I will say that after our last discussion, I was looking up, there were a lot of pyramids, you know, before um, Ramses. Oh, there are tons. They started yeah. building them yeah. actually around 2600 mm-hmm. uh, BCE. So the pyramids. I think those. There's lots. Yeah. It's just certain pyramids. Oh, of course. May have been. And I'm not. Mm-hmm. There's also the fact. Oh, no. I mean, like, I feel like I've seen conflicting evidence, too, that. Who actually built the pyramids? It's a big oh, of course. Well, area. the Egyptians yes, built right. the pyramids. I mean, <laughs> yes. that much, yes. The Egyptians built the pyramids, and presumably with the help of people mm-hmm. who were enslaved, right? That's what you do. You capture people and you make them do work like that. But also, there is a lot of evidence, actually, for the villages around the pyramids, that mm-hmm. the worker villages, right? The same that sort of factories had in the U.S., except that a l- the evidence for at least some of them that they've uncovered demonstrates something that we might consider actually more progressive than a lot of the sort of early 20th century factory towns where, like, you could spend like, factory <laughs> yes. money, you know, all of those things. Um, some of the working sort of um, quarters, the workers' quarters, sort of workers' settlements around the bases of the pyramids and so on, or nearby, um seemed to have been sort of really, um, you know, populous, mm-hmm. busy places in ways that seem, of course, the work is still terrible and backbreaking, but a lot of it was very specialized mm-hmm. as well, right? You know, the sort of the technology that went to sort of the cutters and all these things, right? So that it was this very sort of industrious section of, you know, it's not really, town wasn't necessarily out that far, but yeah. of a settlement, right? These very sort of industrious settlements um, that really did grow up sort of around the workers. So that the, the extent to which enslaved people were involved has definitely been questioned. It's still likely, you know, that at least some of the pyramids were built to some extent with mm-hmm. that type of labor. Because you have to have a lot of bodies to put something like that together. Yes. 
But obviously, that is absolutely not exclusively the type of labor that was used. And in fact, some of the more specialized labor and workers had sort of settlements and quarters nearby that were the sort of thing we would expect Mm -hmm. later, you know, the Middle Ages or even the modern era, right, of workers and sort of the places they live. If you think of all the sort of houses built post-war, right, little nice houses, um, maybe not, you know, not big, not fancy, but perfect for sort of working class that that sort of yeah. dream that the U.S. still is nostalgic for, that did kind mm-hmm. of exist, right, for certain types of white white middle class workers, um, that may have been sort of the equivalent, right? So this may have existed, and on a degree that maybe people didn't originally think for the the people who built the pyramids. Yes, so that's all absolutely true, and this is in no way to say that any of this is historically <laughs> accurate, right? When it comes to the Bible. Right. But in as much as people try to tie things to certain histories or even think when people are writing this down, what is their understanding of the time in which this happened? Mm-hmm. That Ramses seems reasonable, maybe somewhat after him, presumably not before him. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is sort of the time frame during which the Israelites would have known Egypt may have been there, may have been enslaved or just, if not actually enslaved, a class that was not allowed to rise through society, right? Because, of course, when they first arrive, Joseph is allowed to rise. Right. Um, And then at some point that changes, you know. So, you know, it might have just been sort of discrimination. (laughs) Um, But whatever it was, right, that Mm -hmm. are they thrown out also, maybe? Oh. Or do they choose to leave? You know. Okay. No way of knowing, but certainly the Bible says that they escape. So... We don't 100% know if it's like somebody getting fired and then turning around and saying, well, I didn't want to work for you anyway, or if it was genuinely a, as they claim, we really want to leave and being held, you know. Well, it would be a little more, I think, um, you know, the ways in which um, migrant workers today, Mm -hmm. right, at the end of a season, then maybe ICE rounds them up and deports them all, and then they don't get their last paycheck you know, but then, of course, the next season, maybe the border isn't being watched very carefully when people come over for the mm-hmm. growing season because businesses need those workers. Borders are porous. <laughs> yes. So there could be elements of that, right? You know, it's, of course, it's nobody knows historically. I'm not mm-hmm. even going to try. But all of these possibilities are sort of out there. And they're all obviously part of this story in a lot of ways, right? Because the story ultimately, the reason it's in the Bible <laughs> is because it is about that level of discrimination in a society. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in this case, right, there's an escape. So that becomes the huge part of it. How do you get away? And obviously, that can be a huge issue for enslaved people. You know, that is something that's absolutely historically true. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it happened exactly this way in Egypt, it obviously happened and has happened. Right. Whether or not a story is true is not necessarily whether or not it actually happened the way it's written down to some extent. Right. And it's right. not just me being a, like a dodgy fiction writer saying, exactly. you know, yeah. every, every story is true. But every story is right. kind of true. <laughs> right. And this is Susan Laurie Parks, who's one of my favorite playwrights, has been doing a Watch Me Work, which is fantastic. You can go online at the Public Theater and sign up 
um, to sort of be part of the Zoom session. She used to do them in person at the public, and now they're virtual. Oh my gosh. That sounds really amazing, actually. I highly recommend this. I will put up the link. It's extraordinarily fantastic. You can also just watch okay. the stream. You can see all the past streams at HowlRound TV. But I recommend anyone listening to the podcast or interested, just check this out. So sign up and participate in a Zoom session. Um, she gives amazing advice, and she's just brilliant and fantastic. Today, um, or yesterday, I guess. Um, today is Saturday. So yesterday... Friday, um, her advice, someone asked about tropes, and they said they were writing a suspense story or a play, and they were worried about tropes. And Susan Park said, for example, you mean in horror movies, like the, you know, black person always dies first, and the person who'd asked the question said yes, or mm -hmm. for example, you know, the lesbian always has to die, or those sorts of tropes. And Susan Park said, well, your characters have to be amazing. And then after that, there are certain tropes you avoid, right? Like the who dies first. But there are other things that maybe you don't avoid. Right? So she said she just created a story where um, there was uh, abuse, right? A husband abuses a wife. And that the producers or someone called her and said, you know, this is a trope. Yeah. And she said, well, but it's also reality. And she said, you can't avoid certain things that are still real have become tropes. But that doesn't make them less true. Mm -hmm. It just has to be about the characters, right? But you still have to tell those stories. You can't ignore them because, right. you know, right. people are saying, oh, that's a cliche now. It's If it still happens, you still need to talk about it, right? Yeah. So the Passover story, in some ways, is the perfect, perfect example of that. Because it has this sort of the enslaved people. They have to escape. Mm -hmm. um, they can't, right? Um, they have this brilliant leader, but even he can't quite get them out. Luckily, right, he has the sort of divine connection. Um, and we get famously the ten plagues, right? So the sense that God is trying to force the issue. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, they're allowed to go. But then even then, right, the leader's mind is changed. Um, so the leader of the group trying to escape has to perform miracles. And this is, of course, yes. most famous is dividing the Red Sea. And people have speculated, you know, in as much as that may not have happened in this story, but in as much as the idea was possible may have come um, from things like mm -hmm. uh, before tsunamis and stuff, when there's an earthquake. Water moving out. Yes. And then it comes back with a vengeance afterwards, right? So that would be an example. But then once you've escaped, what happens? Right. Right. Where do you go? Escape isn't that easy. Freedom isn't that easy. Right, so we have the wandering in the desert for 40 years. They didn't have MapQuest. And people make fun of that part because, of course, the area that we're talking yes. about, yes, it's such a tiny area of the world. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could do anything for 40 years is ridiculous. I mean, you would have walked across the entire Middle East at that point. It's right? true. Even if you're like a very slow walker. At some point, yes. it becomes like... <laughs> You've reached the Atlantic Ocean at some point. As, as far as I could tell from reading the book of Leviticus, mostly they were sitting in tents talking about washing your hands after you have leprosy or something like that, so... Well, yes, this is also famous <laughs> where we get, right? Leviticus, we get yes. all of the... yeah The cleanliness rituals but, and the who can offer... Um, oh, all who can rituals. offer offerings and stuff like yep. that. Um, yeah, but that idea... Right. So it has all of these and then reaching the right, quote unquote, promised land, mm -hmm. which the leader is not allowed to see because he has 
not been ultimately the perfect leader. He's been so good and so amazing, right? But he has not been perfect. He has lost his temper. He's not, he's allowed to see that they get there, but he's not allowed to see it, mm. right? This is, this is brilliant, iconic, mythic storytelling, right? And of course, it's been retold over and over and over in every form of sort of literature, right? Drama, movies, everything. Right, because it contains all of these giant tropes, <laughs> um, liberation and freedom and promise, the inability to actually reach it or see it fulfilled, right, because of a mistake, all of these things, right? It's it is a brilliant, brilliant story. Yeah, and the idea that the that today it's also the it's not quite a trope, but it's like when you are leaving one land and going to another land, like you find out as pilgrims have found out throughout history that the place that you come to is never really empty you know so oh, of course that's that's another thing mm-hmm. that aspect is often not played up i think but it turns out that not everybody in every place you come to is willing to just like share their right. land well and then this is the famous part of that comes after that shows up then right in other versions and by other versions, I mean, <laughs> right, the people who love the Passover story usually stop before you get to this part of it. Yeah. Which is that um, then the Israelites are basically told to conquer everything, which, of course, has been used to justify colonialism, right? And you carry mm-hmm. the ark before you, right, conquer everything. And, of course, this will most famously show up in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yes. Spielberg. <laughs> Brilliantly so. Oh, man. That movie yes. freaked me out when I was a little kid. That last scene where they open the ark and everybody's eyes balls melt out like oh so brilliant i remember watching that through my fingers but right spielberg is a young jewish kid that is what you imagine would happen if you went in there's so much said about how you don't dare go into the holy of holies Mm -hmm. what would happen well that is what would happen right yeah (laughs) that's exactly the sort of thing you'd imagine if you're a small kid listening to this yeah so he got to make it happen which is a scene that is absolutely still brilliant right yes that's it's so iconic but okay yeah uh, should we talk? But so that's the Passover that's story. That's the Passover yeah. story. And then at some point, right. people start yes. retelling the story as part of right. a, a meal right. called a Seder. Seder mm-hmm. means order. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a meal with an order to it where you do various rituals throughout the meal. Yep. But the overriding ritual also that it's the storytelling, that you have to retell mm-hmm. the story. Yes. Right? Which also to me is brilliant. That's what we think of as history. It is, of course, something we still say, right, about about slavery, about, right, the era of U.S. history, obviously slavery or the Japanese internment, mm-hmm. um, the Holocaust, that you retell these stories so we don't forget. So the idea that Passover, that that is built in to the celebration of that moment in the Bible as a holiday, that we need to retell mm-hmm. it and celebrate it and we can't forget it. And it negates a lot of the stuff that comes after in the Bible in a lot of ways, that you have to be kind to strangers because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Right? There are all these brilliant things about it. Um, yeah. So, okay. One of the main rituals that comes up is drinking wine. Yes. Right? So much wine. Four full glasses. <laughs> And more. Drinking is not, it's not an isolated incident. There are a lot of Jewish holidays yes. that involve drinking. Of course. Uh, I remember trying to leave a Purim party at the Chabad in 
Ho Chi Minh City, oh, and goodness. like the Rebbe wouldn't let us leave until my friend did shots with him. Yep. Right. Uh, but Just drink until you can't tell the ceiling from the floor. Yes, is the point. Can't yes. tell the difference between good and evil. Yes. Uh, but that's just a side effect of yes. the drinking. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about this in conjunction with Easter, because there's yes. a lot of uh, wine, blood. Yes. Uh, what's it? Constant. Const, const- <laughs> Transubstantiation? Can't just, yes. In uh, transubstantiation. Yes. In. Um, I'm forgetting all of the words I learned from Joyce. <laughs> That is okay. Uh, All the transubstantiation that goes on uh, in a literal sense in a Catholic mass and also in, we don't, I don't know how literally it's meant in the, in the story of, of Jesus's last supper. Yeah. Catholics, for Catholic, right, transubstantiation is literal. For Protestant denominations, it is still, it is more symbolic. Yes. But so, so when Jesus hands around the the matzah yes. and well, he says, "Eat this because it is my body," yes. do we understand that he was a man, just saying like metaphorically, ah. or well, do we understand that he is a god who is? I want to back this up a little bit. Okay, let's back up. What the beginning of the day? Well, or no, something. the week. Remember, I started yeah. this by saying the whole week ah. is Easter. Easter week, yes. yes. And the last two days specifically are known as the Triduum, T-R-I-D-U-U-M, Latin, of course. Right, so the three holy days, right? Oh, okay. Friday, Saturday, tri- Sunday. Tri-deum. Yes. Um, but really, we should start on Palm Sunday. Okay. Right, where Jesus returns to Jerusalem, um, and palms are thrown before him. Mm-hmm. And so usually there are processions on Palm Sunday with palm branches. And sure. in the Middle Ages, um, we'll probably talk more about festivals and specific celebrations and plays and things at some point. Um, but they're, my favorite part of this is the palmicell donkey, which is sort of the German word for like palm. Okay. So palm, palmicell. Palmicell donkey. donkey. Um, and the, this would usually be a wooden donkey. So someone had carved a donkey. You could obviously use real donkeys as well. Someone might ride in as Jesus on a donkey and you'd reenact the whole thing. But frequently there were wooden donkeys that would be pulled along. Wooden donkeys seem more cooperative. Yes. I think this is partly where that comes from. Yes. Um, And then you could either have someone riding it or have a, you know, have Jesus on top. I think I linked and we'll link in the notes to this to the Met has an example. You know, and they could be little. So Mm -hmm. they could be little symbolic things that you'd pull along, like a sort of child's toy size, or they could be very big, almost life-size or even fairly life-size, mm-hmm. and these would be pulled along over the palm branches as part of the celebration. So this is sort of the beginning, and this is the giant celebration, right? And the celebration is because, um, and this is, of course, in retrospect, how it is seen, <laughs> but remember, even, of course, right, the men writing the New Testament in Greek, by the way, right? So if the Hebrew Bible, it's the Torah, well, no, no the... The New Testament is just in Greek. Yeah. We do get the Septuagint okay. eventually, yes. Um, but the New Testament in Greek, and then, yes, you get the Greek version of everything, and then eventually a Latin version of everything, the Vulgate. Okay. Yeah. So the Septuagint, right, the Greek version of everything. But um, orig- but the original languages for all these things are different. So the Hebrew Bible, which is, right, the first five books, essentially, and a big chunk of the prophets, most of the prophets. <laughs> and then in Greek, you get the Gospels... Um, so, I mean, it's the New Testament, 
So what we call the New Testament is originally written okay. in Greek. Koine Greek, common Greek. So this is, right, hundreds of years after um, not just Homer, who's writing in like 750, uh, but then all of the plays, right? If you know Aeschylus or Socrates or Euripides, mm-hmm. or right, who are writing in the 400s, um, in the 300s. And this is a long time after uh, any of our favorite Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, they were way back. Yes, they're in the 300s. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So they're the 400s into the 300s. Plato, Plato and Aristotle both mostly 300s, Socrates is the 400s. Right, so the plays, 5th century Athens, which is the 400s, is basically everything you know about Greece, with the exception of Homer. Who is older. And, um, yeah, and a mm-hmm. few other people, but we won't worry about, the, I mean, they're amazing, but we'll ignore them for the moment. <laughs> Pre- we won't talk about pre-Socratic philosophers. <laughs> yes. and then, um, and then Plato, Plato and Aristotle are really in the 300s. Okay. Um, but otherwise, yeah. So this is all being written, you know, basically 350 years later than all of that. So the language is much different. It's simpler. It's known as sort of common Greek. The same is true then when the Vulgate is written, right? This sort of com- common Latin. Mm-hmm. It's not classical Latin. It's what will become known as medieval Latin, right? To vulgar, in quotes, Latin. And the idea is to write for the people. Of course, the problem is once the New Testament is written in Greek, most people... By the time it really Christianity really spreads, most people aren't speaking Greek; they're speaking Latin. Okay. So you get the translation that Saint Jerome does into Latin with some of his friends. It's worth pointing out, right? The sort of ideal in the Middle Ages was that it was this miracle that he had translated it, and anything that had changed in quotes, which is to say, anything that may have been a mistake in the translation, which was different from the original language, Hebrew or Greek, mm-hmm. was um, essentially God revising His own work. <laughs> It's the ultimate worst copy editor, like... <laughs> yes, right? But the miracle of sort of St. Jerome's translation was that where there was a difference with the original language, it was because God intended it to be different, right? This was the new updated, revised edition. Is St. Jerome the one who's always... He's always pictured with lions? Yes. Or a lion? Yes, because okay. he, you know... The story of... It's like Androcles and Lion, only it's St. Jerome. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes, he saves the lion. A little... S- syncretism or something and of course the lion oh absolutely um but the lion is of course also symbolic you know john the baptist is seen as the lion of the wilderness and right the idea of christ as the lion right so there's tons of symbolism around it yeah this is presumably why he got a lion but yes it, it kept him company um in reality of course he isn't the only one who did this he sort of headed up the project and he was the lead editor and translator but the other people did some of the work and people who've gone back and studied this have sort of found that his this the parts that he presumably did himself are very accurate and in some ways the reason people assume that he's the one who did them is because they're so accurate, mm. right? So we sort of assume that he really did. He was a scholar. He was a very intelligent man. He did know these languages. So his translations are quite accurate, but not everyone on his team was quite so accurate. And that's where some of the other things come in, uh-huh. basically. But anyway, so that's how we end up with the Middle Ages, for the most part, using this Latin version of the, the Bible, the Vulgate, um, which is it's brilliant in its own right, I mean, I have to say. But this is so these are all the languages going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course this is right, Jerusalem under the Romans. So there's Hebrew and Latin, and of course there's tons of Greek, because this is still what was a big part of the Greek speaking world. So, um and what will ultimately sort of, you know, Byzantium and stuff. I mean, there will still be Greek spoken nearby. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are sort of um converging here at the moment. And retrospective 
the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem is seen as a triumphant return because everyone theoretically knows what's going to happen at the end of the week, which is salvation, that they're going to get salvation. Oh. You know, so we might say he was welcomed in return because people were glad to see him back. Okay. He was sort of a well-known leader at the time. Where had he been? Was that the wandering the desert period? Yes, he goes off and he wanders the desert for 40 days and he does he does various things like that. Symbolically, 40, 40. Yes, not 40 years. Yes, days. The type, anti-type thing. He's tempted. Oh yeah, the temptation. Mm-hmm. He's tempted into the desert. I remember. Mm-hmm. But he, so he returns sort of triumphantly. He is, of course, very much disliked by the priests of the temple. So this is another reminder that Judaism at this point for only a little bit longer, mm-hmm. still has a temple, much the way Catholicism and most sort of Christian denominations do today. So there's a hierarchy, right? The sort of temple hierarchy, the various priests in the temple, what they're allowed to do, what we just said about the Holy of Holies and the Ark and who's allowed to sacrifice yeah. and who isn't. There are all these hierarchies. And Jesus is essentially a rabbi, what we now would call a rabbi, right? He is a separate leader, who believes that people should be able to access the liturgy for themselves and the ritual for themselves and sort of speak to God themselves. Hmm. This is, of course, how Judaism is now practiced, right? Because once the temple is destroyed for the second time, it's not rebuilt. That's where the Wailing Wall comes from. But to to point Mm -hmm. out, it wasn't because of Jesus that Judaism is now practiced this way. I feel like... Oh, no, not at all. It's worth making that clear to... No, no, but he's... You know, people who might take that the wrong way. He's part of the rabbinic heresy, essentially. But he is sort of ahead of his time. Well, he's not ahead of his time. He's one of many people like this. Yeah. um, Who are starting what what at the time is considered a heresy, but will become the way Judaism is practiced, which is with rabbis, right? With individual leaders. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you do talk to God to yourself, and everyone can. Maybe you're supposed to do it in a group, (laughs) <laughs> you still have to have a minion, stuff like this. But, right. you know, um, and to be fair, right, this movement has gone through a lot of different iterations as well. So there are people who really believe a rabbi is just more a facilitator for the group. And there are people who really do kind of view a rabbi as a potentially messianic figure. Mm. Right. That's the sort of certain aspects of Hasidic Judaism do have that view, which is incredibly controversial in Judaism, obviously, because the idea of viewing a rabbi as a messianic figure basically brings us back to Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> but it comes up in the book, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which yes. I recommend to anybody who really wants to understand Judaism um, by Michael Shabon, mm-hmm. even if it's about an alternative future set in Alaska that didn't really happen. But, but it's a great book. And mm-hmm. I feel like spiritually very true yes. in a lot of ways. Yes. And that's, that's, so that's the point, right? So, no, Jesus does not start this, but he is part of this movement that will, will ultimately win, actually. Mm-hmm. But because he's part of this movement, what happens... The temple doesn't like him. The temple doesn't like him. The priests don't like him. He has famously called them corrupt and moneylenders and all these things. And there's the, one of the best songs in Godspell. <laughs> is, right? Um, right, you yes. lawyers and Pharisees. Yeah. Um, alas, alas for you. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. But that, so that element, so he is disliked by sort of this, the upper echelon of the Jewish hierarchy. And they are, of course, also in tune with the Romans. They're essentially collaborators, Mm -hmm. right? Collaborators exist everywhere in history. One of my famous, most favorite versions of this is, um, I teach it a lot, 
it's not actually famous. It should be. <laughs> but to my students, it's sort of famous. Um, and it's a South African company. We'll link to this. It's a South African company's version of the mystery plays. So mm-hmm. these the medieval mystery plays, which we'll probably talk about in a separate episode. I have too much to say about them. But um, specifically, they do the Chester plays. And um, they do this, you know, they do the whole thing. They cut it, of course, so it's about two hours. But they, you know, it's a, the cycle of the world. We talked about this in our first episode um, from right creation to doomsday. And for them, this moment, the Jewish priests are played by, it's, it's a South African cast, right? So it's, it's multiracial and multilingual. They speak a wide variety of languages, right? So there's Afrikaans, there's Gosa. Um, there's just, right, there's six or seven different languages Zulu. at least spoken. I don't know. All, yes. There's a lot of languages of South Africa. Um, yeah. So, wide variety of languages. And um, God, in the first act, also plays Jesus in the second act. <laughs> yeah, New, okay. Old Testament, New Testament, half and half. Um, and so he's, of course, he's African, black African, South African. But then Pilate is played by a white actor speaking English. And... The two priests who we'll talk about, who are part of the story specifically by name, Annas and Caiaphas, um, are clearly South, they're black South African actors, and they're clearly playing these roles as collaborators, mm-hmm. right? The reminder that there were black Africans who collaborated with apartheid. And it's a brilliant rendition, because of course, that is exactly what this story is about, right? You have these collaborators who are in league with the sort of oppressive regime of Rome, because that's how they maintain their power. So they're against him. But a lot of people are happy to see him return. Um, because he is one of these leaders, right? In this sort of heresy. All right, so Palm Sunday. Um, we fast forward a bit. Thursday, he comes back for Passover. That's why he came back. Mm-hmm. Right, so Thursday night is the first Seder. And they they have a Seder. And there's a point in the Seder to this day where, yes, you break the matzah, you pass it around. Yeah. You absolutely, there's a lot of points when you drink wine. And famously, this is, of course, the moment where we start to shift into a different religion. Um, he says, right, yes, take of, right, this bread, this is my body, right, and the wine, this is my blood. And how he meant them, who is to say? <laughs> um, it can obviously be symbolic. Right. And there certainly are denominations that see it as symbolic. Of course, right? Sure. Right, the bread of affliction. That sort of your, that the body is like the bread of affliction, right? While we are alive, we are afflicted, and then when we die, our soul is freed from the flesh, right? That being said, communion in Christianity, that's the point, right? So the communion wafer is, of course, the body, and the wine is the blood. Yes. And um, by eating and drinking them, right, you partake quite literally, of the body and blood um, of Christ, whether you view it symbolically or for Catholicism, transubstantiation, right? The priest essentially reenacts this moment, and the prayer creates a change. So it's still it might still look and taste like bread and wine, but it is literally, and this is the correct use of the word literal, even though it's perfectly correct to use literal to mean figurative, but that's not how I'm using it. It's actual blood. Right. Actual blood, actual body. So is this 
I'm sorry, this is the most irreverent question, and I'm probably going to cut it out later, but is it considered, like, endocannibalism when people do this? Like, are they eating the body of Christ as a way of taking godliness into them, like, to gain something from that? Or is it just because of this one, like, reenacting this one moment? Well... I shouldn't call it endocannibalism. That's probably the, yeah. not the right word. It is, though, of yeah. course. That is that is essentially the point. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the idea, of course, communion, right? That you have become mm-hmm. one with God. Yeah, hmm. right. Um, and this, of course, is an incredibly old, 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 old ritual. <laughs> so long before Judaism, and therefore, obviously, long before Christianity, the idea of right eating something that symbolizes the body or the blood of a god in a ritual goes way back. And that is essentially what this moment is, right? That's absolutely yeah. the point. And the reason that it has become so significant is because of really what comes afterwards. So, famously, this is the Last Supper. Right. <laughs> right. Um, he goes out into the garden. There's the agony in the garden. So he's sort of praying to God, you know, am I really going to go through with this? Can you let me do something else instead? Um, in some versions, right? The four gospel don't agree. They don't all tell everything and they don't all necessarily always agree with each other exactly. But um, he's essentially sweating blood. He's so sort of moved. Um, famously, right, the evangelists all fall mm-hmm. asleep. The apostles, <laughs> everybody. Um because, you know, they can't stay awake. And he finds them asleep. And he's like, you know, I asked you to do this one thing and you can't, you can't stay awake. And it always struck me as kind of, um, you know, that moment in Paradise Lost where God is, is watching the devil fly into the garden. And he says, like, I made them so that they could withstand it. But I knew that they would fall anyway. And it's like that same sort mm-hmm. of thing, like. He's like, I asked you to stay awake, but he, like, it It sort of struck me as, anyway, like, like that I knew that this would happen, sort of. Right. It, it's very, well, faded. this is also a very old, old legend, and it's not clear, there's not a direct line between this, but before we started recording, we were talking about Gilgamesh. Oh, yes, he had to stay awake, and the bread thing, with, yeah. Yes, and the snake comes along and eats the foot, right, and he, and then he can't stay awake long enough to, right, sort of gain immortality. And so that idea, right, that they are human, they are mortal, and he knows it. Mm -hmm. He is also mortal, but he also simultaneously isn't, which is why he has to do what he's going to do. Nobody else can. Right. And that's really the point, right? And he can't blame them for being mortal. He doesn't blame them for being mortal, but it is a reminder that they are only mortal and he isn't, and that's why he has to do what he's going to do, basically. But Judas shows up, right? Um, He's, of course, famously betrayed Jesus to the Romans and also the priests, right, who are out to get him. So, right, everybody shows up, the Romans and sort of the collaborators. Um, And various things may or may not happen, depending on the version. In one version, Peter cuts off one of the soldiers' ears, and Jesus restores it, right? He's, this is not the way. He knows what's happening. He has to go. He goes. He's taken to the priests, Annas and Caiaphas, um, then to Pilate to King Herod, back to Pilate, 
again, that's if you cross all four Gospels, right? They don't all make him have all of those journeys, but if you put them all together, that's what happens. Essentially, he's accused of blasphemy. He's accused of saying that he's the son of God, right? And when he said things like the bread and the wine, that would mean that he meant it sort of literally, I'm a God and you will eat me, Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, you know, partake of everlasting life. He, of course, doesn't really answer any of these accusations. He says, well, this is what you've said, right? He didn't say any of this. Um, He's accused of saying he's the son of God, but of course, that can obviously be metaphoric. We're all the son of, or daughter of God, right? right? The children of God. He is accused of saying that he's the true king of the Jews, which makes Herod very nervous, which again can be seen as very symbolic. He says his kingdom is not on earth, right? His kingdom is in heaven. But between all of these, what basically happens is that he's essentially accused of treason. The Romans don't really care about most of it. And this is even true. This is clear in the Gospels, even, right? The the Romans don't care about most of these accusations. But the idea that he might be thinking of committing treason, which is essentially that he's a revolutionary, Mm -hmm. that does make them a little nervous. Um, And it is the reason why he can be condemned to death. And the reason why they're willing, and by that I mean, of course, Pilate, um, willing ultimately to let him die. And Pilate, of course, famously washes his hands of it, right? He doesn't want to be seen as having done it, but also he's not going to undo it. <laughs> so now we're into Friday, right? Thursday night was the Seder, the arrest in the garden, everything else happens. So Friday, he's sentenced to death. This is, again, Roman, so which means mm-hmm. crucifixion. He carries his own cross through the street in a procession. The stages of the cross. Absolutely. Those okay. mostly come out of the Middle Ages, to be fair. Most of them aren't mentioned in the Bible necessarily, mm. but, you know, that's okay. We get famously, right, to Golgotha. This is a great moment because a lot of medieval iconography, you mentioned the Garden of Eden, a lot of medieval iconography shows the cross being planted, essentially, where Adam was buried. This becomes the medieval legend which I love. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about the legend of the cross in a future episode. It gets its own story. It deserves its own story. Yeah, it does get really complicated, as I found out, actually, back when I asked you about Christmas trees. Yes. Like... (laughs) Because then we talked about trees. Trees should probably get their own episode. The cross is seen as a tree. And Jesus is seen as the fruit of the tree, which brings the fruit of the tree of life. He is the fruit of the tree of life. Right? Mm. We were thrown out of the garden... After, right, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Uh. That is not an apple, but is, of course, seen as one later because the word apple in Latin and evil. Yes, but Latin, the apple and evil are puns, essentially, right? It's a pun. Pumas? No, no, melee. Oh, melee. And male, evil, right? Oh, I see. Okay. But it's a pun. So... I mean, literally, it's a pun. <laughs> like, yes, yes. It's, it's supposed to be funny, right? Yes. Um, and so that is why the apple is seen as the, the fruit of evil, right? Um, it doesn't work in English so much, but that's okay. It works, it still works like in Italian, you know, right? Um, anyway, so, um, so he's seen as the fruit that hangs on the tree of life, right? So we eat of him, literally, and we are given salvation, right? So life, not everlasting life on earth, but salvation, everlasting life, because we will exist forever in heaven. Um, and he is the new Adam, right? Adam fell, but Jesus brings us back. Mm-hmm. Also, and this is the fun part, Mary is not exactly Eve. 
she can be seen as a parallel. She is absolutely seen as a parallel to Eve, right? Eve is the one who fell, the woman of sin, and Mary is the opposite. She's the pure virgin. She's untainted by sin. She wasn't always immaculately conceived, but in the Middle Ages, that does become orthodoxy. Although there's kind of an argument about it. Um, but Jesus himself is also seen as Eve, which is Oh, that's interesting. Because his flesh is feminine because he only had a mother, essentially. Oh. He is both feminine and masculine. He is both mortal and God. He's really fantastic. I mean, I have to say, it's a brilliant, brilliant (laughs) sort of story. And, you know, we hope that he was an amazing guy. I mean, he must have been on some level. So, and certainly he terrified, you know, he terrified the Romans. He terrified the Jewish hierarchy. So he was doing something right. I mean, he was speaking truth to power, etc. I I always like a revolutionary. Yes. He did a great job of shaking things up. He absolutely did. And I mean, he really did, right? And so we have this moment, right? Um, him on the cross. And that's also a whole thing, right? We get his words on the cross. And the final words are translated in various ways. Um, the preferred Northwestern translation. <laughs> Barbara Newman, Richard Kiefer, medievalists. Is, uh, it, has, it has been completed, Hmm. essentially right that's i'm gonna use that phrase but okay um or it is finished but it has been completed so that his work on earth right he came here to do a job he has done it it is it is finished right okay his, so he has completed his work and the thing is that to undo adam's sin and to reopen heaven right so from the christian tradition heaven has been closed everyone's gone down to hell doesn't matter all the people moses everybody doesn't matter how good you were even John the Baptist, who's already dead. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody went to hell because heaven was closed, right? Because it took, you had to be perfect. You had to live a perfect life and then sacrifice yourself for humanity to reopen heaven, right? It needs the, a blood sacrifice. As things do. Again, this is before Judaism and Christianity, right? What we call today pagan, although that's somewhat unfair, the idea of a blood sacrifice. Judaism, of course, has blood sacrifice. We have just talked about that. Right, the, the Passover the sacrifice. Lamb. Yes. So this is where, um, first of all, Eastern, most languages is called Pasquale. Most languages. In Romance languages, <laughs> it's called Pasquale. <laughs> it's related to Passover, and that's the obvious point it's supposed to be. In Passover, the final plague, everyone, right, there's locusts and there's frogs, famously, which is the best one. Yes. Um, blood, but, um... Yes, boys. Mirren, yeah. I was going to try to name them all in like a sort of Jewish seven dwarfs way. Yes, we could do them all in Hebrew <laughs> in the song, which is brilliant. Uh, but yes, the death of the firstborn is the... The last one, yes. Most famous, and of course the final one, yeah. And uh, the Israelites sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood on their doorposts so the angel of death will pass over them. This, of course, basically where the holiday gets its name. Um... And the Paschal sacrifice, that lamb that is sacrificed so that others may live. So Jesus is the Passover sacrifice, right? He gave his body, his blood, mm-hmm. literally, right? The matzah and the wine, but really right. he is the lamb. He is the lamb that has been sacrificed. His blood has been painted on the cross, which is essentially, right, the tree. It is the doorpost to heaven. Mm-hmm. It is all of these things. It is now the tree of life because his blood has opened heaven, right? It's the blood on the doorpost that has reopened heaven. And now people are allowed in. And we'll talk, uh, we'll have a separate episode on hell where we talk about the harrowing of hell. Yes. Right. But so after Jesus dies, he is buried. He is, Saturday is a dark 
dark, dark day. Um, he has to be buried immediately before the Sabbath, right? So he's buried Friday night before the Sabbath. This is Jewish tradition, of course. Um, Joseph Arimathea gives up his cave that he has, right? He has this tomb that can be used, that's a cave that can be used as a tomb. Um, and then Saturday, this is ostensibly what Jesus is doing, is harrowing hell. Um, this is one of those traditions that the Middle Ages loves that has kind of been knocked out of tradition by modern Catholicism. Vatican II sort of came through and swept house, and there have been other house cleanings since, and some of this stuff has gone away. Um, but we'll okay. sort of leave that. But essentially, right, all the good people do get led up into heaven. The first person, of course, in heaven is the good thief. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. One of them believes in him and asks for salvation. The other one doesn't. And Jesus says, right, you'll... So the good thief is theoretically the first person in heaven, which is also a great commentary on how none of those important people got in first. The sort of, you know, he's not actually nameless anymore because he's been given names, but this random guy who's a commoner and an actual right. thief is the first person to actually get into heaven, right? So that's nice and symbolic. Um... But then all the good people get let up. Sunday comes. It's after the Sabbath. Mary Magdalene, who's fantastic, um, decides to visit the tomb with two of Jesus's aunts. So his mother's sisters, right? His mother, of course, the Virgin Mary. Um, her sisters seem to all be named Mary. So there's Mary uh, Clopas or Cleophas, and then Mary Salome. <laughs> um, and they go with Mary Magdalene to the tomb, and they find it empty, of course. The stone has been rolled aside. Um, an angel's sitting up there and asks them what's going on. Um, and then Mary Magdalene famously sees Jesus, right? And he says what's happened, and she can't touch him because he hasn't yet... He actually hasn't yet gone to heaven. Oh, no, nolo me tangere. Yes. Um, and so he doesn't... Right, he has to go to heaven first. Um, but she's the first person who sees him. She is told to go tell everybody. So she becomes known as the Apostle to the Apostles. This is, of course, back to the Middle Ages. Um, because she spread the word to the Apostles, mm -hmm. right? The 11 who are still left, about what happened. Which is phenomenal. Because, of course, women weren't allowed to be priests. Women weren't allowed to do anything, really. So the idea... This is not true at all, really. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of amazing women in the Middle Ages. But the theory goes, right? That women aren't sort of allowed to do a lot of stuff. And yet Mary Magdalene is one who was given the word directly from Jesus after he's risen the first person he talks to, to go off and tell everybody else. Um, the Middle Ages were disturbed by this, and a lot of the stories invent a moment where he talks to his mother before he talks to Mary Magdalene. <laughs> sure. They felt this was unfair, basically, that Mary should get the first word. Yeah. Which is also... No, I, I get I mean, it. That's okay. I get it. That. That's fine. But so that, right, so the Passover symbolism is embedded so deeply and the whole idea of a paschal sacrifice and life and rebirth and resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. Except here it's, it's spiritual. It's not literal. We also, I said Mary, you know, the idea of the Immaculate Conception, when we say that, that means right. Mary's conception was immaculate. Obviously, Jesus's was because it's from God. Um, that's why she is still a virgin. But the idea that hers was so that she is already untainted. And therefore, Jesus is sort of extra untainted. And that... That's something the Middle Ages really argued about, but we end mm -hmm. up we end up with that eventually as being orthodoxy. But the idea of the Mac of Conception is that Mary's mother, Anne, who had a lot of daughters, obviously, and named them all Mary, apparently, when she had the Virgin Mary, which was what we will call her, distinguish her from her sisters, um, that Mary was immaculately conceived. And there's also a famous story that the Middle Ages loved. You see this in statues... Um, and in 
paintings all over the place, tons of iconography, that Mary, the Virgin Mary, goes to visit her cousin, her first cousin, Elizabeth, um, who's much older. Much, much older. Because you know how families are, all the kids and everything. So Elizabeth's much, much older. But she's become pregnant at this very late age. Um, sort of miraculously. And of course, her child turns out to be John the Baptist. Okay. I have seen them pictured together in a lot of pictures. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And when Mary shows up, Elizabeth sort of feels John the Baptist move in a way that instinctively tells her somehow that Mary is carrying the Hmm. Son of God. And she sort of says this, right? She's had this revelation just instantaneously, and she blurts it out, which sort of gives Mary Hmm. confirmation that it's true. Cool. Yeah. That feels like a great place to take a break. So let's, uh, should we bring this episode to a close for now? And we can talk in part two about how the Middle Ages dealt with all of these things and uh, yes, talk more about Easter as a holiday and stuff like that. Yes. And the bead. The bead. Yes. We got to get to the <laughs> venerable bead. Yes. All right. So. Awesome. I'm, I. We will see you in part yes, two. Yes. We'll see you in part two. Until then, keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.